Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. Thank you for uh, choosing to worship with us this morning. Those of you on the east side, Mayfair Road, Sherman Park online, thank you so much for joining us, as well as everybody here at West Dallas. My name is Adam. I serve here at Epicos as the small groups pastor, and one of the favorite parts of my job that I get to do is work with a volunteer team here at Epicos to develop a study guide that we go through. So some of you, I'm seeing some study guides in the crowd. That doesn't appear out of thin air. Uh, I work with a team of volunteers at Epicos that we spend countless hours diving into the passage that we're studying, trying to understand the author's original intent, and then write questions that might be applicable to us today in Milwaukee in uh, 2022. It's not, it's not a small task. So if you go to the acknowledgement section in the front of that book, you can see who helped out with the Colossians study guide. Please, if you know them, see them, thank them, buy them a coffee or something. They would, re- they would really love it. They, they appreciate it. Would you mind picking up the Bible in front of you or in your seat back pocket? I'm going to ask. I see some smartphones coming out. Put those away. Let's grab our physical Bibles today. I'm that guy. Go ahead and turn to Colossians 2, 13 through 15 which is our text for this morning. And then if you were here when I preached back in July, you might know what I'm about to ask you to do. If not, that's okay. But I would ask that if you are able and comfortable, that we would stand for the reading of scripture today. So let's go ahead and stand collectively before God's word. There's a reason for it. I'll I'll explain later. So Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You can go ahead, go ahead and take a seat. Thanks for obliging me on that. If you're anything like me, you often live with this desire, this longing to live another life other than the one that you have or the one that, that God has given you. We kind of live with this low-level anxiety that our life won't amount to anything or have any level of significance, and we ache for something more, something better, right? That's kind of the, the human condition. And even though for those of us who are followers of Christ, who have placed our faith in him and have been brought from death to life, as Paul talks about in our passage today, we often tend to continue to live in our sin and shame and fear that we won't amount to anything, right? And we tend to believe the lie that God doesn't actually love us, that he didn't take care of our sins on the cross, and that he's still holding something against us. And as a result, we end up living half alive, not really living into what God has for us. After all, if we've been brought from death to life, as the Apostle Paul talks about in our passage today, shouldn't we be experiencing what Jesus claimed he brought us in John 10.10 when he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I hope I'm not alone in this room. I hope there are other people with me but I don't often feel like I have life, let alone have it abundantly. And so we often resign ourselves to life as we've experienced. We lower our expectations even when it comes to God and we don't truly take Jesus at his word that he can can give us abundant life. And so we resort to just scrolling on our phones, watching too much TV, turning to our vices, or getting addicted to something. We just, we resort to this way of life because if we're honest, it's easier. We don't have to do anything. We just stay in our same patterns. But why is this the case? I think Paul offers us an explanation through our passage today, and it starts with the fact that we, that, that we are what I would call storied creatures. We're about to enter Hallmark season, so you all know what that means. If you look up on the screen, I think we've got a great uh, picture of all the Hallmark movies. There we go. Those are all different movies. That's not the same movie, right? 
but yet they hook us. Another big city lawyer or doctor is about to lose his fiance when she returns to her mountain hometown and falls in love with the baker she knew from second grade, right? We all know that story. Hallmark would not make these movies if they weren't making money off of them, and they are making money off of them simply because we love stories even if they're cheesy and predictable. This is what I mean when I say that we're storied creatures. I mean that whatever most captures our attention, captures our hearts, wins over our life. And because we ache for something more, we also have this tendency to believe in false stories, that we can have just this ideal life like the Hallmark movies. We search for something of meaning and value outside of ourselves. Whether it's through books, TV shows, movies, plays, whatever it might be, we're captured by a good story and we love letting our minds run wild with them. How many of you have ever been so captivated by a Netflix show that you just can't wait to get home and watch it? I'm not talking the the eight-hour Twilight saga binge. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you're at work, you can't get anything done. When you're trying to sleep, you can't fall asleep because you're imagining all the scenarios that will play out, and you just can't wait to get back to watching that or reading that book. And then there's the other side of stories. There's what I would call false stories, the ones that make us believe that the grass is greener somewhere other than where we currently are. Now, that's not to, I'm not talking about the fact that some of us in this room might be in a situation where we're waiting for God to deliver us from something awful. I'm simply alluding to the fact that there are stories portrayed in social media and through marketing campaigns that make us want something other than what we have. Of course, I would rather be in Hawaii or in a mountain getaway cabin in Montana rather than in another meeting at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon. I think we can all echo that. So why are we drawn to stories that allow us to escape our lives even if it's just for an hour or two? I think it's because we don't know the story that we're actually living in, and within that story, there's the presence of a very real enemy who is literally hell-bent on keeping us from God and keeping us dead in our sin, not trusting in what Jesus has done through his work on the cross. And so let's spend some time getting to know that story as the Apostle Paul portrays it in our text today. In our passage, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to us as being dead in our trespasses, and he talks about these rulers and authorities. And both of these ideas are key to understanding the story that we're living in. And to better wrap our, our heads around what Paul is saying, we need to head back to the Old Testament, all the way to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In it, it talks about how God created the universe. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after creating animals, Genesis said that God saw that it was good, And after creating humanity, Genesis says that God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, so we have God, the created universe, with plants, animals, human beings. Adam and Eve are experiencing abundant life and relationship with God, and it's all fine and dandy until we hit Genesis 3. So you can follow along with me up on the screen. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Remember Paul's claim that we were dead? But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So where does this crafty snake come from? As we, as we turn in the Bible, we realize that this snake is Satan. And to understand this, we need to back up a little bit farther, even more so. And so although we don't know all the details 
There are real spiritual beings, both good and evil, which God created before he created humanity. So remember in our passage today, Paul talks about disarming the rulers and authorities. And we saw the same language in Colossians 1.16. This will also be up on the screen. He wrote, For by him, that being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now most theologians uh, talk about these rulers and authorities as one, real spiritual beings, or the second option, social structures that have been developed by these real spiritual beings. And typically, we've experienced the spiritual realm and uh, spiritual beings engage in what I would call two unhealthy opposite sides of a spectrum. So up on the screen here, you'll see a spectrum. There are either some people who go a little off the deep end, thinking there's a demon behind every bush, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's people who just ignore the existence of spiritual beings because we have science and we live in the West, we have Wikipedia, come on, the, the ultimate source of information. So on one side, we've got the ignorance of spiritual beings. On the other side, we have a demon behind every bush, those two understandings. But I want to offer a third middle of the spectrum understanding when it comes to the spiritual realm and uh, spiritual beings that I think most closely aligns with the biblical authors. So what do we mean by supernatural beings? After we finish the book of Colossians, we're going to be spending a good chunk of time as a church diving into the book of Exodus. And there's many situations in the book of Exodus where there are what could be referred to as lowercase g gods. But I just want to point out one. In Exodus 20, verse 3, when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, we see the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And we tend to skip this part because we're like, of course we have no other gods before him. Or they don't even exist. We just assume they're not real. But God would not have said, don't have other gods before me if there weren't actually other gods that were real spiritual beings, right? And so up on the screen, you'll see a, a better understanding, a middle ground, which is this, this idea of lowercase g gods. This word Elohim is what we find in Exodus. And the interesting part about that word Elohim for gods, it's actually the same word that's used for God, uppercase. And so it's a noun rather than a name. And so there are gods, lowercase, and then there's God, uppercase, who created them. If you want to know more about this in your study guide when you're taking notes, you can see the further, further learning resources. There's a great book called God Has a Name that goes into much more detail about this. But the important thing to know is that these Elohim, these lowercase g gods, these other spiritual beings are real. They have power and authority in our life. They were created by God to be good, but they were bent by Satan's ways in order to wreak havoc on God's creation. I grew up in Wapaka, Wisconsin, which is about two hours north of here, tiny town of 6,000 people, kind of the ideal place to live, a chain of blue water lakes, like 28 of them. It's amazing. But there are two problems in, in the town that I grew up in. Huge problem with alcoholism and divorce. And they're both widely accepted. It's just the cultural norm. And again, I'm not one to think that there's a demon behind every bush, but I can't help but wonder if there are some spiritual beings that have a hold over the geographic area of my hometown and are keeping people dead in their sin and addicted and turning to, to alcoholism and to divorce. What about here in Milwaukee? Again, it's speculation, but I can't help but think there's some dark spiritual force over the region of Milwaukee that is keeping people in their sin through drugs, alcoholism, infidelity, just to name a few. So Satan, foremost of these rulers and authorities, started us down this path in Genesis as the serpent and accomplished his goal of bringing death and separation from God. And since that fall, mankind has been lost, dead in our trespasses, and in need of a savior to rescue us from our sin. All the while, we're facing an enemy that is literally hell-bent on humanity's destruction and keeping us from God. How does Satan attempt to do this? The exact same way that he tempted Adam and Eve. 
to get us to not trust God at his word, that God is holding out on us, and that God does not have our goodness in mind. Satan wanted her to believe that God was holding out and and, uh, keeping something from her. We see the same thing in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted by the desert, in the desert by the, by the devil in the New Testament. We see that uh, Jesus is tempted to take matters into his own hands and turn stones into bread because he's hungry to go to the highest point of the tower of the temple and jump off and then to um, take control of all the powers in the world. Satan's trying to get him to not trust God, to seize autonomy from God and, tr- and think that um, God doesn't have his best in mind. And we see the same thing in the Colossian church, right? Paul is writing them to remind them that it's because of what Jesus has done on the cross that they no longer have to submit to the rulers and authorities that he's talking about. They were tempted to give their trust to the spiritual beings behind the religious cults of their day, but Paul is begging them not to. And so if Satan came to Adam and Eve, came to Jesus, and came to the Colossian church tempting them to not trust that God had their best in mind, we would be wise to assume that he's gonna have the same tactic today with us in 2022, the, the temptation to trust Satan's words over God's words. And what are Satan's words, according to Paul? What's the false story that he presents to us? It's that we, in fact, are not cared for by God, that Jesus' work on the cross was not sufficient, that he is more powerful than Jesus, and that we're still dead in our sin. Paul obviously wrote the words of our passage today because he felt that the Colossians needed to hear them. That even though they, like those of us today who have placed our faith in Christ, have been made alive in Christ, they were still struggling to live according so. And so do we. So what's Paul's solution to this problem? He wants our hearts and our minds to be captured with the story of God, with who he is, the extent that he went to to rescue us from our sin, and to have a full image of who Jesus is so that we might not yet again submit to the rulers and authorities that exist in our day. And instead, live into the fact that we've been brought from death to life in Christ. So what is the story of God? It's the story of redemption since the fall of mankind into sin. God has been pursuing us and acting throughout humanity to bring us back to himself. And throughout all the Bible, all the way back into Genesis, shortly after the fall, we see glimpses of how God is going to redeem us. In Genesis 3.15, we get a glimpse of the victory of Jesus on the cross. And we see God saying to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then six verses later, we see the first foreshadow in the Bible of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Genesis 3.21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Those garments of skin came from animals that were sacrificed. And as we read on throughout the Bible, we're reading the story of how God is redeeming humanity and calling us back to himself. So let's quick jump back to our text for today. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, trespasses is just another word for sin, and when Paul talks about a record of debt, he's alluding to the fact that because of our sin, we were dead. But Jesus canceled it by his work on the cross so that we might have eternal life. The theological term for this is substitutionary atonement, which is just one of the aspects that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And then where it says, in him at the end, a more accurate translation, most people say, would be in the cross. And so it's by the decisive act of God, who remember is the capital Elohim over all other lowercase Elohim who holds all authority, and he has declared that we have been made right with God by the cross. 
How have we been made alive together with Christ? First, in the forgiveness of our trespasses. Second, in the cancellation of the record of debt that was held against us. Third, by taking that record of debt, nailing it to the cross. And fourth, by a public spectacle being made of the rulers and authorities, disarming them and putting them to open shame through the cross. And this might sound like fluffy language, but Paul is wanting us to understand the weight of what has taken place. Before this, two things were against us. Our record of sin debt and the rulers and authorities had power over us. But no longer do either of those two things have sway over our lives. And why did God do all this? Because of his deep love for us, not desiring his very good creation to be led astray, to be captured by the rulers and authorities. And so this is our story for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. And if you're in here today and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that's okay. But I want you to know that God even today is calling you to move from death to life. And you don't have to get your act together before you come to God, whatever that means. And in fact, you can't. Jesus' invitation to you today is to surrender to the way that you've been living life and live into a new way of life in him. And he's inviting you into that today. If you've been walking with Jesus for some time, but you feel shame because of your sin to the point that you don't even want to talk to God, I want to assure you that that feeling is from Satan. God dealt with our shame on the cross, and Satan tries to continually heap his shame on us, but Jesus dealt with it. And still, despite knowing all this for me personally, my tendency is to be apathetic toward my own life, living as if I'm somewhat half asleep, And I know there will be times in which I don't live into my life in Christ and I allow the rulers and authorities of our day to tempt me away from Christ and live according to myself and uh, not trust that God has my best in mind. And that's okay. We live in what theologians call inaugurated eschatology, which is just a really fancy way of saying now and not yet. You can just say now and not yet. What this means is we catch glimpses of life in God's kingdom here in this life, but not fully until Jesus comes back. And although this is true, the Apostle Paul told the Colossians and us that there's this aspect of our life that we have to live into. We have to intentionally make a plan to follow. Not because we're trying to earn favor with God, but because we already have favor with God. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And so I want to share something which I thought was fitting for Veterans Day. Here's a quote from Pastor John Mark Comer talking about this now and not yet. Think of it like this. What D-Day was to World War II, Jesus' death and resurrection were in the war against the evil powers. For those of you who are a little fuzzy on your American history, D-Day was the day the Allies retook the beaches of France. By the next morning, June 7, 1944, Hitler and his Nazi regime were done. They had no chance of winning. But it was followed by a full year of bloody, ghastly fighting from the beaches of Normandy to the center of Berlin. We live in between D-Day and V-E Day between Jesus' first coming to land the decisive blow and his second to end evil for good. And in the meantime, our job is to stand in that victory, to hold our ground, to cooperate with heaven's invasion of earth. Yes, we fight, but our fight isn't with swords or spears or AK-47s. It's with prayer and sacrificial love. So don't join a militia and go to war. Get on your knees and give your life away. Now, I have to be honest with you, because we live in this now and not yet aspect of God's kingdom, waiting for Jesus to come back, we're going to experience life in three different ways. We're going to experience life as a saint, we're going to experience life as a sufferer, and we're going to experience life as a sinner. So we'll experience life as a saint because we know and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, and we decide to live into that. 
As a sufferer, because we understand that the rulers and authorities somewhat still have some sway over the world and people will hurt us because of their sin. And then as a sinner, because we often forget what Jesus has done for us and allow ourselves to be allured away by the rulers and authorities to try to do life on our own, to seize autonomy from God. And as a result, we often want to avoid the things of the Lord or avoid him altogether, and we don't always want to worship him or or live our lives for him. And I have to be honest, even as a pastor, I don't always want God. There are times in which I think my sin is too much for him or I want to hide from him because of my sin, but deep down, I want to want God as the center of my being. But how do we live into our life in Christ? How do we stand into the victory that Jesus has secured? I would say that it's a call to structure our lives around deep trust and contentment in God. So what does structuring our life around deep trust and contentment in God look like? It looks like following in Jesus' footsteps, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and joining him in disarming the rulers and authorities of our day, by partaking in countercultural practices that will continually recalibrate our hearts toward God's kingdom. And so we are to live as people for whom the triumph of Christ is real, but we have to understand how we function as people who have been saved, but yet live in a sinful, fallen world still. Now, I need to be clear. If you have placed your faith in Christ, positionally, you have eternal life, and there is nothing that can take that from you. You have been brought from death to life. You have salvation. You will spend eternity with God. But because we have habits that have been ingrained in us in our ways of living before we started following Christ from the sinful world that we live in, there are aspects of our life, ways of interacting with God, ourselves, and others, sin patterns that we have to unlearn and relearn ways of the kingdom allowing ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul alluded to this in uh, the passage that Pastor Lance taught through two weeks ago when he said, as we received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And we'll hear more about this in Colossians when Paul talks about uh, putting to death what is earthly in us and putting on the character attributes of Christ. What he's saying is that we need to be systematically retrained. And this transformation is a lifelong process and Jesus is loving and present enough to be with us through it all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this look like practically in our lives? I think it looks like developing a plan to be attentive to God, ourselves, and others. And this is gonna look different for everybody, but I wanna share a diagram with you, a basic framework of what's been helpful for me. And when this diagram is up on the screen, it might be a little bit confusing. Don't try to read it all at once. Let me walk us through it. So, Three things when it comes to being transformed in the image of Jesus. Biblical teaching, community, and spiritual practices. We need all three. If all we have is biblical teaching, at first it'll change us because we'll be awakened to the word of God and see who Jesus is. But over time, if all we have is biblical teaching, we just read the word a bunch, we just have a bunch of head knowledge that doesn't actually live out in our lives. If we just have community and no biblical teaching, no spiritual practices, we're just gonna look to other people in our life to serve us and get what we want from them. If we have spiritual practices but no biblical teaching and no community, no living life with other people around us, then we're just gonna resort to legalism and trying our best to live the Christian life and engage in things like fasting and prayer and always falling short. And then if we have biblical teaching and community but no spiritual practices, we just have one-upmanship, right? How many of you have ever been in a small group or community where somebody's just trying to prove that they know the Bible more than you? That's what's gonna happen when we're puffed up with knowledge. We're not actually leaning into the spiritual practices allowing ourselves to be transformed. If we have community and spiritual practices, but we don't have biblical teaching, all we have are self-help groups, and we might as well find that in the community rather than our church. 
If we have spiritual practices and biblical teaching, but no community, we're not living with other people, we just have rampant individualism, and following Jesus just becomes a self-development project. But when we have all three, when we have solid biblical teaching, when we're in community with other believers, and we're partaking in spiritual practices, that's when deep transformation of our souls takes place, and we're more formed in the image of Jesus and sent on mission for the kingdom of God for it to advance through our lives. Now, that's a lot. You don't need to memorize this. All I'm trying to do is to get you to begin thinking about how you might more closely model your life after following Jesus. As I said earlier, if you've placed your faith in Jesus positionally, you are alive in Christ and nothing can take that from you. We approach spiritual practices from a place of invitation and not obligation, and they're called practices for a reason because we can never perfect them, so don't even try to. Lastly, I want to share with you the spiritual practice that, as of recent, has most deeply impacted my life, my walk with Jesus, and allowed me to sort of thwart any allure that the powers and authorities might try to hold over me. That practice is Sabbath. If you have a study guide, you can turn to page 14 for a definition. It'll also be up on the screen. We would define Sabbath as this. While there are Sabbath moments that can be partaken in for shorter periods, a true Sabbath is a weekly period of 24 hours set aside to stop, rest, delight, and worship. The intention is that upon the regular practice of the Sabbath, we are reminded of our lack of control and God's provision in our lives. During Sabbath, we are invited to stop working, allow ourselves to rest fully, take joy in our relationships in life, and worship God for it all. So here's what it looks like for me. On Friday nights, as often as my wife and I are able, we sit down at our dining room table, work through our little Sabbath study guide that we have. We light two candles to remember and observe the Sabbath. We put together a a nice cheese board, which is just uh, Lunchables for adults, right? Uh, I hold my daughter, I look her in the eyes, she's six months old, and I just pray a blessing over her and her life that she would live into who God has for her to be. And then we invite God into the next 24 hours of our life that we might take time to, to stop from our work, to rest in him, to delight in the good gifts that he's given us, and to worship him as a result. And at first, practicing, a, practicing Sabbath was really hard. We all know we live in a 24-hour productivity culture and setting aside 24 hours to just be with God and friends and family and partake in activities that bring us deep joy isn't popular in our time. It feels like an unproductive waste of time, but I promise you that it will do wonders for your soul. It can also be hard because of the preparation that goes into it. Friday, uh, Fridays on my day off and then Sunday afternoons and evenings, that's when I get my house chores done. I don't do any on Saturday morning or Saturday during the day if I'm not able to, if I can avoid it. And so this means that not everything on our list gets done. We all have checklists of stuff that we want to get done and we get to the end of the week and it's before Sabbath and I'm like, man, I really wish I got that done. But that's okay. Not everything is going to get done. And Sabbath reminds us that God created the world and he takes care of it quite well while we take a step back. Now this might sound extra and unnecessary, but by partaking in Sabbath, we are literally waging war against the rulers and authorities and we're joining Jesus in his triumph over them. And we do this by saying no to the constant pull for more money, more notoriety, and more things. We do this by living into the creation as God ordained it. In Sabbath, we are waging spiritual warfare. Now, Sabbath is going to look different for each one of us, and some of us, depending on our age and stage of life or our resources available to us, might not be able to take a full 24 hours. But I promise you, even a two-hour time slot where you can take to stop, rest, delight in worship, your phone is away, it will do wonders for your soul. 
And if you're in a small group at Epicos, I want to encourage you to, as you've been hearing me today, any questions, reflections, or even tensions that you might feel about Sabbath, to bring those to small group, to discuss them with your small group, to share how you might implement Sabbath into your life individually and even maybe communally as a small group. Sabbath helps us fight the lie that our experience of life is all there is, is and helps us settle into the goodness of God and enjoy what the life that he's given us. If you want more resources on this, you can go to the hub.epicos.org. There's a great book by Dan Allender called The Sabbath. And then there's season one of the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. Now to finish up, it's important to know why spiritual practices or partaking in the activities or liturgies of the church work to affect change in our soul. Here's what author James K. Smith says. He writes, liturgies work effectively and aesthetically. They grab hold of our guts through the power of image, story, and metaphor. That's why the most powerful liturgies are attuned to our embodiment. They speak to our senses. They get under our skin. The way to the heart is through the body, you could say. So when we come to church on Sunday morning, we engage in spiritual practices or liturgies that shape our hearts toward the kingdom of God. When we're in worship, we are using our ears and our mouths to hear and speak back to God what is true. When we pray to start the service, we are inviting the Holy Spirit into this space. And when I have a stand for the reading of scripture, we are quite literally presenting our bodies before God and saying, we're ready for what it is that you have for us today. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in giving the church the two ordinances of baptism and communion. They are ordinances that quite literally get under our skin. And next week as a church, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper through communion. But here at our West Dallas campus today, we have some people partaking in baptism. When they confess their sin, when they allow themselves to be lowered into the waters of baptism and raised up, they are waging spiritual warfare by celebrating and putting to open shame the rulers and authorities in this area. And so when we practice baptism, it has implications in the spiritual realm, especially in the geographic region of Milwaukee. And so we follow Jesus' footsteps of making a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities when we partake in baptism and communion, when we worship here on a Sunday morning, when we join a small group, when we engage in spiritual practices, all throughout indexing our hearts toward the kingdom of God, slowly, progressively becoming who we already are in Christ. And so we're tuning our hearts to a different story. And here's that story one more time. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. Thank you that you made a way that we might be brought from death to life in you. I pray that we would live into our aliveness in Christ, that we would recognize the sinful habits and patterns that we've adopted because of living in this sin-soaked world, And I pray that we would make a plan individually to involve ourselves in spiritual practices, solid biblical teaching, and community. May you transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.